Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I want to pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. I would like to start this episode by welcoming our newest listeners in Mexico. Welcome, welcome. We are very glad that you're here. Now, we've talked quite a bit this season about things that can and do go wrong in the garden, and we've talked a lot about ways to prevent them. In our first Garden Myths episode, episode 32, we talked about things like coffee grounds, banana peels, and eggshells, whether watering during the heat of the day can burn your plant leaves, marigolds, adding sand to your soil, talking to your plants, and more. Now, if you missed that episode, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Now, on this Focal Point Friday episode, we're going to to look at two things that people do or are told to do in the garden to prevent weeds and pests, and one topic that has confused many home gardeners for generations, including myself. Let's dig in, shall we? The first myth I want to tackle is the Dawn insecticidal soap trick. Now, every gardening group on Facebook has seen this hack. Use a mixture of Dawn dish soap and water and spray it on your plants as an all-purpose insecticide that's all natural and won't harm your plants or the environment. Hmm, let's dig into this a little further. First, what is Dawn? It's not a soap, despite the name dish soap. It's really a detergent. And what's the purpose of a detergent? Detergents cut through greasy stuff like oils, fats, and waxes by dissolving them. This is through a combination of ingredients like surfactants, solvents, cleaning agents, preservatives, stabilizers, antibacterial agents, opacifiers to make the product more opaque, and fragrances to make that combo of ingredients a little less harsh on the nose. Now, This combination does wonders for your dishes and for cutting through grease and oil on the feathers and furs of wildlife caught in oil spills, like you've no doubt seen in the advertisements. But what happens when you put it on a plant? Let's jump back first to the whole point of an insecticidal soap. Using a soap and water mixture can kill some pests on your plants, mainly mites, aphids, thrips, white flies, and immature leafhoppers. The fatty acids in the soap will dissolve the exoskeletons of these pests, which cause them to dehydrate. So essentially, mixing pure soap with water gives the dissolving effect of the soap a transport mechanism in the water. And that's it. But like I mentioned before, Dawn dish soap is not a soap. It's a detergent. It's very different from a soap. First of all, it has all those other ingredients that soap does not have. Scientifically speaking, soaps are sodium or potassium fatty acid salts, and they're produced from the hydrolysis of fats in a chemical reaction called saponification. 
if you've ever looked at the ingredients on homemade soaps that you get at the farmer's market, you'll usually see things like saponified olive oil or saponified lard. Saponification is literally the chemical reaction in which fats or oils react with lye to form soap. Sapon, soap, Saponification, saponification, the creation of soap. That's it. Pure soap does not contain fragrance or moisturizers or any other additional chemicals. Now, detergents, on the other hand, are completely different. A detergent is a surfactant or a mixture of surfactants plus fragrances and all those other ingredients that I listed. The properties are similar to soap, but they are more dissolvable in hard water, and there are a whole slew of chemical reasons for this. But one that stands out for our example is the lack of fatty acids. So using Dawn or any other dishwashing detergent will not work on the garden pests in the way that we're aiming because it doesn't have that key ingredient, the fatty acids. But let's go even deeper. What did we say detergents were really good at? Breaking down oils, fats, and waxes. Well, it just so happens that plant leaves rely on natural oils and waxes to protect themselves from microbial invaders. So when you spray a detergent on your plants, you're breaking down those waxes and oils and opening the plant up to invasion from plant pathogens. Now, Combine this with the fact that there are no fatty acids to kill off the insects you were aiming to destroy, and now you've just administered a double whammy. You've removed the protective coating from the leaves, and you've left the damaging insects intact. That's no bueno. So, using Dawn dish soap is a myth. Using a pure soap, however, like a Castile soap, is absolutely helpful for those insects that I mentioned. Now, this does not mean by any means that it's completely safe to use just willy-nilly. You can still affect pollinators. So, if you want to make an insecticidal soap to battle aphids, thrips, and the like, use one tablespoon of pure soap to one quart of water. Mix thoroughly and then use immediately very early in the morning or very late in the evening when the pollinators are not around. Test your spray on just a small part of the plant the first day and wait. Some plants may react negatively to insecticidal soaps no matter how pure the soap is. So if you see any signs of spotting, wilting, or browning of the leaves, Try reducing the amount of soap in your mixture or just go a completely different route altogether. Now, if it seems like there's no reaction, then go forward with your next batch. Mix up your soap, applying immediately, coating the entire surface of the plant from top to bottom and underneath the leaves. The spray has to come in contact with the insects in order to work. So, in short, insecticidal soap is a true solution. Using Dawn dish detergent is a myth and can actually be harmful to your plants. Next up, homemade weed killer. You've heard me talk about First Saturday Lime, the environmentally friendly alternative to pesticides that we use on our farm. We use it everywhere, in the gardens, in the chicken coops, in the pig pastures, and around the outside of our home. First Saturday Lime created a non-caustic formula that is tough on bugs, but totally safe for humans and pets. And now, as a listener of the Just Grow Something podcast, First Saturday Lime can be your favorite natural pest control, too. 
You can save 20% off your first order by using the code JUSTGROW at checkout at firstsaturdaylime.com. It's a super strong formula derived from eco-friendly products, and it's so effective, I have a 20-pound bag delivered every month to use on the first Saturday. Go to firstsaturdaylime.com and use code JUSTGROW for 20% off your first order. Again, social media runs rampant with this one, the homemade weed killer. The formula is supposedly simple and safe. Mix vinegar and salt with boiling water and pour it on your weeds and you'll be done with them. Or even better, vinegar, salt, water, and our old friend Dawn dish detergent. True? Or just another gardening myth? I think you know where I'm going with this, but let's break it down. Let's start with the vinegar. Regular off-the-shelf vinegar is 5% acetic acid or 7% if you get the pickling vinegar. Now, if you pour this vinegar on a weed or any plant, really, the acidity is too high for the leafy green portion of the plant to withstand. And within about 24 hours, that leafy green portion will likely have died back. So it sounds like it's worked, right? But wait, what about the plant's root system? No, bad news there. 5% or 7% acidity is not enough to penetrate to the root system of a plant. See, once the vinegar hits the soil, its acidity is very quickly neutralized into acetate salts that have no effect on a plant's roots. So that weed will most likely bounce right back again in about a week or so. Well, they say that's why we add the salt to the mix. Okay, table salt or sodium chloride does indeed kill weeds as well as any other plant it comes in contact with. Salt dissolves into water and is easily moved along with the water and in concentration kills the plants. But it also doesn't break down in the soil. The sodium ion will always be there. So either it's going to persist in your soil in that spot in your garden to where nothing will ever grow there, or it's going to get washed into another part of your garden or your yard or a local stream or river and contaminate that area. Not a good thing. Soil salinization is actually a serious problem in many areas of North America and the rest of the world, and things quite literally will not grow in salinized soil. This isn't something that you want to do to your lawn or your garden. But we're adding it all to boiling water. Surely that combo is effective, right? Okay, please stop. (laughs) The boiling water all by itself is going to have the same effect on the weeds as adding the vinegar or the salt or both. Of course, the leafy green part of the weeds can't tolerate the heat from the boiling water and are going to die off. But again, it's not affecting the root of the plant. So that weed is just going to grow back. Now, some tender annual weeds may be affected, but those are generally the ones you can literally pluck with two fingers. So why are you going to go to the trouble of boiling the water? Now, adding Dawn to the mixture will absolutely affect the leafy green growth of the weeds just the same way it would your wanted plants in the garden. It will open the plant up to pathogens and diseases, but that's not really a quick or effective way to ensure the removal of a weed from your garden. And yes, if you've added it to a solution that contains salt, it's going to help the salt adhere to the weed longer, 
but you'll still have the same problem with the salt persisting in the soil no matter what. And let's address the issue of horticultural vinegar really quick. Yes, there is a version of vinegar that is 20% acidity, much stronger than the stuff you get off the shelf. They really shouldn't use the term vinegar to refer to this product because it's anything but the innocuous solution that we're familiar with in the grocery store. It is truly 20% acetic acid, and it will absolutely burn and kill anything it comes in contact with. It will also burn your skin and cause you to go blind if you happen to splash a drop into your eyes. So before you listen to that guy in the gardening group who has used horticultural vinegar on his driveway with great success in killing the weeds, understand that there are safety precautions that are essential when using that product, gloves and goggles specifically. It will kill small annual weeds, but it has a limited effect at killing larger annual weeds. It only kills some perennial weeds, and it's not effective on grass weeds because, again, it does not affect the roots. And yet, it's caustic enough to actually eat away at concrete. And it's totally non-selective, which means not only will it damage any other plants it accidentally comes in contact with, like your prized begonias or tomatoes, but it will also kill beneficials in the soil, like microbes and earthworms. So, my opinion, homemade weed killer made from vinegar, salt, boiling water, Dawn dish detergent, or any combination thereof, it's a myth. And it may even be detrimental to your garden and the soil. So, just remove your, your weeds the old-fashioned way. And finally, let's talk about a subject that has long been a confusion for many gardeners, and that is cross-pollination. You've seen the pictures. Some weird-looking vegetable someone pulled from their garden that looks like a cross between a cucumber and a cantaloupe, or a pumpkin crossed with a zucchini, or a bell pepper crossed with a banana pepper, or even worse, a jalapeno. And everyone says, oh, you planted them too close together and they cross-pollinated and everyone has a good laugh about the birds and the bees and then asks what it tastes like and then they move on. I got news for you. That's not how that works. I'd like to thank my patrons over on Patreon for supporting this and every episode of this podcast. Patrons of this show get access to exclusive content on the Patreon page, bonus hotshot episodes, monthly live Q&A sessions with me, Just Grow Something merchandise, and more. But above all, they get my undying gratitude for helping make this podcast possible and helping me reach for bigger goals like stipends for guests, improved software and equipment, bonus content, and more. If you'd like to support the show by becoming a patron and also receive my undying gratitude, head over to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething or use the link in the show notes. Cross-pollination of compatible species in the same year does not yield a different fruit. And in many cases, those plants they say have crossed wouldn't produce viable offspring to begin with. It's all a very confusing myth, but I'm going to break it down for you as best I can. So let's start with the basics of pollination. In basic terms, pollen from a flower's anthers, the male part of the flower, rubs or drops onto a pollinator. Now this can be a bird, an insect, or even the wind. The pollinator then takes this pollen to another flower where the pollen sticks to the stigma, the female part. 
The fertilized flower then develops a fruit that contains seeds. Now, sometimes this flower is on a completely different plant and sometimes of the same species and sometimes not. This is where the confusion of cross-pollination occurs. Now, successful pollination can only occur between plants of the same botanical species, but not just the genus in general. For example, zucchini and butternut squash are in the genus Cucurpita, but they are different species. Zucchini is C. pepo and butternut is C. muscata. They can't cross-pollinate. Any attempt by pollinators to complete this process will result in failed fruiting. This is when you see a flower begin to produce fruit and then it sort of shrivels up on the plant. This happens a lot for people in zucchini specifically. Poor pollination, not cross-pollination. So even though squash, cucumbers, and melons are all in the same family of cucurbitaceae, they won't cross-pollinate. But what about the plants that are in the same family and in the same species? Let's say, for example, you planted your zucchinis and your pumpkins in the same field. They are both cucurbita pepo. Won't these cross-pollinate? Yes, they absolutely can. But that doesn't mean you'll get a pumpkini or a zumpkin this year. Cross-pollination affects the seeds, not the fruit. So if your zucchini and your pumpkin cross-pollinate, you'll have normal zucchini and pumpkins this season. But if you save the seeds from either of them and then plant them the following year, you may end up with some weird or fabulous combination the following year. Think of it this way. When a woman gets pregnant, she doesn't suddenly take on the traits of the man who got her pregnant. She's still the same person she was before. It's the child that takes the traits of both the parents. It's the same thing with plants. Now, the only exception to this rule is bell peppers or any other pepper crossing with a hot pepper like a jalapeno. Yes, they are all in the same genus, capsicum, and the individual species are not far enough genetically from each other that they won't cross-pollinate. Now, conventional wisdom would tell us that we should only worry about that if we're saving the seeds for the next season. But with hot peppers, there's a catch. The capsaicin, the compound that makes the pepper hot, is contained within the seeds of the pepper. So if you've ever heard somebody like telling you when you are going to cook with jalapenos to scrape the seeds out to make them less spicy, that's why. Now the problem with this is that if a hot pepper crosses with say a bell pepper, those seeds in the bell pepper may be in contact with the flesh of the pepper as it grows. So when we harvest it from our garden and we use it, we may get the heat from the flesh that was in contact with those seeds. Now, peppers are generally self-pollinating, but that doesn't stop bees and other insects from moving from plant to plant. So if you're growing any hot peppers and you don't want your sweet peppers to have any hint of heat, keep them as separated in opposite sides of the garden as you can. I mean, commercial producers separate them by like at least a mile, but even 10 feet in the home garden may be enough to reduce that risk. So what about all those funky fruits our gardeners on social media are showing off? 
There are any number of reasons why those fruits look the way they do. Either the plant was a volunteer or it was grown from saved seed from the previous season, or less likely, the seed grower didn't isolate their crop the previous year. Now, this is rare, but even professional seed providers do have the occasional slip in pollination. But many of these anomalies have nothing to do with cross-pollination at all. Environment has a lot to do with the development of a fruit, and it sometimes just looks like a weird cross between plants has occurred when, in fact, the funky size, shape, or coloring has to do with improper pollination or inconsistent watering, incorrect lighting, plant disease, nutrient deficiencies, or any other number of things. So when your gardening friend tells you that you shouldn't plant your cucumbers, cucumis sativus, near your cantaloupe, cucumis milo, because you'll get a cucalope, you can tell them that you know all about cross-pollination and that you're pretty sure you'll be okay. Now, there was one more myth that I was going to delve into today, but the more I researched it, the more I decided it needed its own standalone episode. I am very into scientific research when it comes to things in the garden, but also as those things pertain to our human health via what we eat. The subject of using Epsom salts in the garden as a boost to, to plant growth has been a hot topic in gardening groups for a while. There have been tons and tons of supposed studies that have been done on this topic, but many of them turned out to be more marketing than anything else. And there have been multiple gardening gurus who've come out lately talking about how it's just a gardening myth and there's little use for Epsom salts in the garden. But there's something there that many folks aren't talking about when it comes to the nutritional component of Epsom salts or magnesium sulfate in our garden plants. So rather than confirm or debunk that myth on its face value, I'm actually conducting a review of the peer-reviewed published literature on the subject to draw my own conclusions, and I plan to do an entire episode on it at a later date. I promise to try to not make it too science geeky. <laughs> I'll save that for the Patreon episodes and maybe for my own peer-reviewed paper on the subject. You know, with all the extra time I have on my hands. <laughs> That's it for this week's Focal Point Friday on more common gardening myths. If you found this episode helpful, I'd sure appreciate you sharing it with your friends and leaving a review of this podcast over on Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments about the episode, feel free to leave me a voice message from the link in the show notes or reach out to me on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast or join our Facebook group, Just Grow Something Gardening Friends. I hope you have a great weekend in the garden and I will talk to you again on Tuesday. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and I will talk to you again soon.